The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we will be looking at verses 9 through 14. Our sermon is entitled, Clean Hands, Pure Hearts. In Shakespeare's tragedy, Macbeth, one of, the most, one of the most ruthless characters in the entire play is Lady Macbeth. The entire play opens with her calling upon the spirits that tend on mortal thoughts to take away from her any feminine instincts to care about life or about others. She had a burning, insatiable desire to get what she wanted, and she didn't want her conscience to stand in the way. She wanted to be queen, and she was willing to do whatever it took to become the queen. And so throughout the play, you see in private that Lady Macbeth taunts her husband, Macbeth, for lacking courage and for being a weak man. But in public, she's the most gracious and welcoming hostess, even enticing her victim, King Duncan, into her castle. And while in the Macbeth's home, King Duncan is murdered and an elaborate scheme is concocted to make it appear as though a guard was responsible when in fact Macbeth and Lady Macbeth used the opportunity to remove King Duncan from standing in their way of taking the royal throne. However, nothing ever turns out the way that it's expected to in a Shakespeare play especially. So while we might assume that they took the throne punished some man unjustly for the murder of the king, and all went on as they held power. There's a turn to the story as the events unfold, and it all becomes just a bit too much for Lady Macbeth. She begins to sleepwalk through the castle, and the woman who was her helper, along with her doctor, listen in to her as she's murmuring fragments of an imaginary conversation that she's having, recalling the night that her and her husband conspired to kill the king. And in her rambling, she once again accuses her husband of having a weak frame of mind and a conscience too sensitive and that there will be nothing to fear or feel bad about once the crown is theirs. And as the dialogue unravels, she not only proves herself guilty, but she also reveals the reality of her own conscience and she cannot actually escape as she hoped. Now, I realize for some of you, maybe I'm giving this away, but it's been around for a couple of hundred years, so (laughs) no excuses. Now, in one of the most famous scenes in all of Shakespeare's works, Lady Macbeth is rubbing her hands as she walks around in her sleep. She's seeing spots of blood that would not be removed. King Duncan's blood was on her hands, and it could not come out. So no matter how much she scrubbed, no, um, no matter how much she wished it away, nothing would do. And Macbeth himself had said that even the ocean couldn't wash their hands clean of the king's blood. And now even Lady Macbeth, who once scorned her husband for being a man with a conscience, finds blood dyed into her very own hands. The once boisterous, confident woman was now a babbling, anxious mess. 
And as we continue this afternoon in our series about the downcast soul, dealing with the very real experience of spiritual depression that many Christians walk through at various points in the Christian life, we would be remiss to not address the significant importance of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord and what that means for us in terms of our experience of God's pleasure. Now, I'm the first to admit that I could do a sermon series on this topic for a hundred weeks. And for some of you, I, sm- I still may never get exactly to the heart of what's going on for you at any given time. The nature of something like this is that it does vary from person to person. It's the reality of the complexity of life in a fallen, broken down world. But what I've attempted to do for us is to paint some big pictures that we can think carefully about and at a very minimum find some principles that we can begin to apply so that if we are in a a dark season of the soul that we might arise from the darkness to the light when we find ourselves in spiritual despair. Now one of the causes of a downcast soul is a pained conscience and a real knowledge within us that we're not walking in a manner pleasing to God. Sometimes we have unconfessed sin, undealt with sin in our lives that leaves marks of blood on our hands that we cannot scrub out, that we cannot wash away on our own. It's there and we see it and we just want it to go away, but it doesn't. And the more we try to just hide it, or the more we try to get rid of it on our own, the more tormenting it becomes, and even at some times it might drive us mad. Unconfessed sin can often be the very cause of the darkness of night in our souls. Now we have to be very careful. We don't want to be like Job's friends automatically assuming that any kind of despair that a person has in their life, any kind of trial, any kind of calamity has come because of a person's sin. That's not Christianity. That's Eastern mysticism. That's karma. But we also cannot dismiss the very true fact that God works in our hearts in such a way as to bring us to see our sin and to see his displeasure by sometimes withdrawing so as to leave us feeling deserted and desperate for him. Now, we've spent a lot of time looking at various reasons why God's people may have seasons of darkness and despair. And if that's you right now, if you're among those who are having a dark night of the soul, I don't want you to hear me saying that undoubtedly, without question, you're absolutely in some kind of unrepentant sin. You may not be, and oftentimes the case is that you're not. However, It's also something we're quick to wave off and forget about and not be willing to talk about because we're down and we think doing so will only bring us lower. But God's word promises something far different for a man or a woman that freely acknowledges the realities of what's going on in their life, identifying those things that keep us from knowing him more deeply and more intimately. So we're going to think about this today by looking at a prayer from the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. The Colossians were either being overrun by or a false teaching was on its way into the church and Paul wanted to protect them. He wanted to keep them from falling into that false teaching. And in this prayer, Paul's pleading on behalf of the people that their consciences are formed by the truth and that the fruit of their lives is pleasing to God as a people who've been delivered from bondage to sin and death. So let's read together Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, 
asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, one of the hallmarks of false teaching is to convince hearers that they are okay just the way they are. And in fact, if they just focus more attention on getting more and having more for themselves, they can be even better. At the heart of it all, of all false teaching, the heart of all false teaching is self. False teaching is sometimes more subtle than others, but it makes all of its claims based upon the flesh. We can hear false teaching, and because it appeals to what we naturally desire in our flesh, if we're not rightly oriented with God, then we begin to believe that false teaching. And in our text, Paul is praying for the Colossians that they would be protected from this false teaching by all of the various means that God provides for us. And for those who are walking in spiritual depression, one of the hardest things to overcome is the ongoing heart-level dialogue. No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. Spiritual depression in time grows into an unruly false preacher of a false gospel. And it entices and it convinces the flesh of a distorted view of oneself and of God. And often it leaves a person with lingering doubt concerning the trustworthiness of God's promises. Whether a person is in sin or has some underlying unrepentant sin or not, this can be the case. And it leads to despair. But it's particularly prevalent in the life of the unrepentant because our inner dialogue is one that that is constantly seeking to justify the sin that we're holding on to so tightly. For the Christian, with unrepentant sin, we're fighting against the Holy Spirit himself because it's him who informs our conscience and brings conviction of that sin into our lives. John Calvin said, Our conscience is a sense of divine justice as an additional witness that will allow people to conceal their sins or to elude accusation at the tribunal of supreme judge. So if we're going to avoid the reality of what our our conscience is telling us, we're going to have to find a way to convince ourselves that our sin isn't what it is. And so we find ourselves a false teacher that will accumulate for us a lot of inaccurate interpretations about ourselves and other people and about God himself. Uh, What's, uh, who in general most typically, is the false teacher that we get. It's ourselves. And what does false teaching produce? It produces a downward spiral in which we fall further and further away from the truth that can help us in exchange for this lie. Do you feel deserted and cut off from God? One of the important questions you have to ask yourself and to be honest about is, do I have unconfessed sin in my life? 
And if you do, what are you going to do about it? What lies are you believing about this sin? What false teaching have you ingested in order to get you through the day, in order to quiet your conscience so that you can continue uh, trying to kick the can down the road, hoping it will all go away, trying to rub the stains out of your hands, but to no avail? Well, the Apostle Paul's prayer for the Colossians is very apropos for the Christian who has a downcast soul because of their sin, because he gives correction to the wrong thinking that occurs in a person's life when they turn all the wrong directions to find help and hope. So how do we dig out? If we're willing to be honest, and if we're willing to identify that we believe the false teacher within us that continues to justify and continues to protect our favorite sin, It only drives us into greater isolation from God. It only drives an emptiness in our soul. So where do we turn and what do we do? Well, the first thing Paul prays for the Colossians, and it's of vital importance for a person in the condition we've described, is that we have a need to set our minds and our hearts on the truth. Look at verse 9. Paul writes that part in part of his prayer, that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The nature of spiritual depression's message is often in opposition to the gospel. And so we need to be filled with a knowledge of God's will. We need the truth. We need to know God's word and we need to receive it and process it and apply it with spiritual wisdom and understanding. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5, Paul wrote, That as Christians, we are to take every thought captive to obey Christ. He's essentially saying the same thing here. We can apply that to when we have sin in our lives that's driving us into despair because our conscience will not let us run free from the truth. We need to set our minds on that truth that we know and that can be known in God's word. So often we have sin and we just don't want to confess that we're, we're holding on to it. And the natural response is to try and convince ourselves that the, the truth isn't there or I'm an exception to the rule or it doesn't mean what it says. But part of what drives despair is that we know we are working against the God who has given us Christ that we might have abundant life. And that abundant life is being traded away each and every day for a lie. Now, one of the biggest battles we're forced to fight in the process of coming out of this place of spiritual depression is with ourselves, is with our unwillingness to be humbled by the word of God. The change we're seeking, the growth that we desire, the, the felt presence of God in our lives that we so desperately want comes only through a battle. And the key to that battle is that we humble ourselves before the Lord and believe what he says. I need my conscience formed by God's word, by the truth. And when it is, I'm all the more sensitive to my own sin, my own need for repentance, my own unwillingness to set aside the things that are interfering with my communion with God because I've favored idols over and above Christ himself. But whenever our minds are set on the truth, When we know the truth, and yet we encounter times in our lives when we're acting contrary to the truth, we have to stop and ask ourselves, are you going to go on living according to a lie or half-truth, or are you going to believe the promises of God? 
We need to talk to ourselves, preach this to ourselves. When we're wringing our hands, when we're trying to get those spots out that we imagine to be there, we have to stop and focus our minds and our hearts on the truth and preach that truth to ourselves. So perhaps the unrepentant lie, uh, lie or the unrepentant sin in your life is something like jealousy, for example. Maybe you've seen someone at your workplace get a promotion. You don't think they should get that promotion over and above you, so you grow bitter toward them. You're angry at them. You're angry at your boss. And in time, what's going to happen? We begin to preach that false gospel to ourselves. You deserve this. You're really great. This should be yours. What are they thinking promoting that guy over me? Well, what have I done? At that point in time, my real anger isn't toward that man. It isn't toward my boss. Who is it really towards? It's toward God. God should have given this to me. I deserve this. And to make matters worse, what's our reasoning? Because I am better. I am more deserving. And in those moments of sinful thoughts, if we're not cutting off the false preaching and instead reorienting our minds on the truth, the weight on our shoulders grows stronger and stronger and we're pushed down and down and down. Our conscience begins to gnaw at us. We tell ourselves, you should be angry. When we should be telling ourselves, you shouldn't be angry. This is sin. You need to repent. But you know, I still think I deserve that. And what happens when we begin to believe the lie? We begin to believe other lies. All of a sudden, my my jealousy has now turned into a sense of self-importance. And now I'm angry at God. And now you know what? I'm going to show them. I'm going to put all of my life into my job now just to prove to them how much better I am. And so now, as we talked about last week, I'm seeking my identity in something else. Now it's in my work. And so you see this downward trajectory. It happens quickly. And so this is why fixing our minds and our hearts on the things above is not just a one-time matter. It's a daily work. We have to keep ourselves from living upon ourselves and living upon our own self-worth and our own distortions of the truth and the lies we want to believe to justify the very things that we know are contrary to God. Brothers and sisters, when we find ourselves in a state of spiritual depression, we must ask, is there sin in my life? What false teaching am I believing or am I telling myself? Now, you may not be looking at pornography or cheating on your taxes or stealing money from a cash register at work, but have you considered, perhaps, you're filled with self-righteousness? Are you seeking to live upon the things of the world instead of Christ? Are you eaten up with anger and bitterness toward others? Until you can deal with those heart-level realities, you cannot expect much progress in spiritual growth or finding light in a dark season of life. It's interesting, and we'll see in our second point, that Paul makes this a condition. Again, look at what he says in verse 9. Be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And now verse 10. So as to walk, it's conditional, in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. 
So why must we set our mind and hearts on the truth? Second thing we see this afternoon, so that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Now, many will hear a biblical call for obedience as something very different from the gospel. They hear the ominous tones of works and legalism and insecurity. And so they make every effort to keep the gospel call for faith and the call for obedience in radically different categories. But Paul's telling us if we're going to live our lives in a manner that's pleasing to God, our minds are going to be set on the truth. We saw that in 1 Peter 2 in our scripture reading this morning. Why? Because truth in me works itself out as bearing fruit in every good work. You see that in verse 10. If the truth is in me and the truth has power over me, it's taking my heart and my mind and my conscience captive. And it has an intrinsic power to produce good fruit. Paul says something similar in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Faith works through love. And if it doesn't, it's dead and it cannot save. As James chapter 2 verse 17 says, Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So, Is obedience, this idea of obeying God, is that contrary to the message of the gospel? No. Obedience is evidence that the gospel is having sway over my life. And its sway is over my thoughts, over my actions, over the way I interact with others and go through my day. Every single day, the good news is not that obedience is not crucial, but that faith is the only way to obey. And disobedience of faith is the only kind that God approves. So what's my point? My point is that if you're not experiencing the pleasure of God in your life, if you don't have a real sense that God is pleased with you as his child, if you do not know the nearness of God and have sweet communion with God, and maybe you're feeling left stranded in a dry and weary land with no water, We have to be willing to ask ourselves, at least present the question to ourselves, am I walking in a manner worthy of the Lord? Let me illustrate this with my own life. When I was a teenager, I was sometimes maybe a little bit of a challenge for my parents. (laughs) I wanted what I wanted. I was going to do what it took to get it. And if anyone stood in my way, I was going to find a way through, over, or around them. They thought I would be a great lawyer. Generally, that came by way of me ignoring or disobeying or fighting with my parents because it was them that were going to stand in the way. Were they pleased with me in those moments? No, not all the time. My obedience was a determining factor in whether or not they were pleased with me. However, did they love me any less in those moments? Absolutely not. I never once thought that that was the case. And so often when that is the case, that's when we take advantage of those relationships, isn't it? And so often that's what we do with God. 
As his children, we know he loves us, even though he may not be pleased with us, and we take advantage of that reality. But this is how it is with God. The scriptures point out frequently that we have many instances in our lives when we do things in such a way that are not pleasing to God, but we're still loved by him. He calls us to live obediently, and when we don't, we will not experience his pleasure. What do I mean by that? I mean that a life lived in conscious pursuit of holiness is a life wherein we experience more of God's nearness to us and sweeter communion with him and a a greater sense of his presence as opposed to a life where we are trying to wash the stains off our hands on our own instead of depending on him in humility and in repentance. If I have unrepentant sin in my life, And my mind is set on maintaining that sin instead of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. I cannot have the expectation that I will not be spiritually downcast. In fact, when my soul is downcast, my first inclination ought to be that I consider whether or not I'm pursuing holiness. Whether or not the wisdom of God is transforming my mind and my heart in Christ Jesus. That I might be walking in a manner worthy of him. Pleasing to God. And so the sense that I have been deserted spiritually, a sense that you may have that God has withdrawn his pleasure is actually a gracious and loving move of God. In the moment, it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't seem like that. But this is actually the grace of God in your life as a believer. How so? When there is sin in our lives being rooted out by the truth of God's word, and in the midst of it, we are crying out like the psalmist, as we, we considered just a few weeks ago, contemplating why our souls are downcast. We generally respond in one of two ways. The first way is that we experience grief, regret, sadness over losing or having a fear of losing the things that this world has to offer that are at the heart of whatever is keeping us from our communion with God. And so it may be something like pride or jealousy or anger or bitterness or maybe a sexual sin or an addiction or an idolatrous relationship. A sinful heart that looks for a way out of despair without repentance and without a pursuit of holiness says, I will have whatever I want whenever I want it. I don't care if it's harmful, if it hurts God, if it hurts the people I love, I will have what I want. This kind of heart, this kind of sin is the pursuit of its own pleasures and not the pleasures of God. It's obsessed with keeping the objects of fleshly desire. What's the pain, the tears, the sorrow, the anguish of your soul, the discontentedness of your heart, the distant feeling of God? What's that all about? It's about the thing true repentance and holiness would require you to lose that you would really like to keep, right? Remember the false gospel you're preaching to yourself? It's all about you. You deserve whatever you want. It's an unwillingness to set our minds on the truth, to confront our sins, to pursue the pleasure of God instead of the pleasures of the flesh. And that will never bring us nearer to God. But it only drives us further into the desert of despair. And that distance you sense between you and God is on purpose. God is doing that to help you see that there is something keeping you away. 
that there's something he's displeased with. There's something that needs to be dealt with. And if you're not willing to deal with it, there's no hope for recovery. John Owen comments, do you think God will help you in such a hypocritical effort to draw near to him without true repentance? Do you think that the Holy Spirit will help in the treachery and falsehood of your own spirit? Do you think he will free you from this so you are free to go and commit another sin which grieves him? No, says God. If I free him from this lust, I will not hear from him anymore and he will be content in his failure. However, there is another kind of response. It may look as painful and difficult as the other response, but the focus, instead of being on ourselves, is now on God. The heart of a Christian who wants to know God's pleasure in their life is not primarily concerned with what troubles them, but rather with what troubles God. It's a response of pain that comes because of the break in relationship with God. It's heartbreak over the fact that God has been offended. God has been grieved. The pain and heartfelt agony aren't overcome with the sadness and pain of losing a thing, but over the real felt exclusion from God's nearness. I hope you see the difference there. You don't have to love the consequences of sin. You generally won't. But godly repentance is produced and motivated by a desire to please God and to know his presence in your life. And friends, if you do not know Christ at all, there's no hope of knowing God's presence in your life. There's no hope of true peace and pleasure because only Christ can make you fit for the things of God. In Christ lies all the hope and assurance that you could want to possess, that you might have abundant, true life in a peaceful, joyful communion with God, no matter the circumstances of your life. Are you searching for meaning? Do you feel lost and wandering around this world, wondering what it's all about? The scriptures tell us, in Christ are all the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. If you turn to him by faith, he will bring you to repentance of your sin that you might have a clear conscience to pursue the glories of God. Brother and sister in Christ, are you walking in a manner worthy of the Lord that you might know his pleasure? I'm not talking about doing it half-heartedly, coming to church and praying before your meals. I mean, are you living before Christ? Are you living upon Christ? Are you daily dying to yourself? Are you reminding yourself of the deceptions of the flesh that tell you that you are worthy of all your desires? Or are you coming and seeking that you might have more of Christ? Now, while the pain of losing the world may seem great, if you're in Christ, Paul shows us in our final point this afternoon that it's all worth the smile of God because you have already been delivered in Christ. Brethren, if you have a downcast soul because of unconfessed sin in your life, the gospel that you're choosing to listen to is false. The true gospel of Jesus Christ does not leave us wringing our hands or wondering how we'll get the stain of sin out. The true gospel of Jesus Christ directs our attention to the nail-pierced hands of our Savior that our guilt might be given over to him and his righteousness counted as ours that we might be forgiven. And so Paul concludes this text by pointing us to the father who has qualified you 
to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, I really hope you see something here that is a, it's a massive bomb of encouragement being dropped on us. Remember, before, the prayer of Paul was to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. But here's the thing I didn't say before. You actually can't do that on your own. The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Do you know what that means? It's, it's utterly counterintuitive. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Do you remember, you remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist? He said, he is the greatest prophet. There was no greater prophet than John the Baptist, said Jesus. That's quite a statement. I mean, this is the guy who continually told Herod that he was an adulterer, that he married, called him out for marrying his brother's wife, told him he was wrong, and yet in the Gospel of Mark it says Herod was confused when he heard this, but he loved to listen. Can you imagine that? Please, tell me more about how awful, evil, and wicked I am. But that's what the text says. Here was a preacher telling Herod, he's a sinner, he's an adulterer, and yet Herod couldn't stop listening to him. This is a man of attractive character. There's a man of of great wisdom. There's a man of unbelievable force, of character and greatness. The, The greatest man who ever lived up to that time. Now, what does that man say about Jesus? He says, one is coming and I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. He's saying, I am less than less than a slave before him. I'm not worthy to look at him. I'm not worthy to be in his presence. I'm not worthy to relate to him at all. And here in our text, when Paul says we've been qualified, this is Paul saying God has, he has worthied you. He has made you worthy of the kingdom of light. He has given you a worthiness that John the Baptist knew he didn't have in himself. You know, you hear religious people say all the time, nobody can ever be sure as to whether or not they're going to heaven. Nobody can ever be sure that they're worthy enough. And and here's Paul coming along and saying, if you're a Christian, in yourself you're not worthy, but in Christ you've been made worthy. You've been qualified. And so do you see what I mean when I say it's, it's counterintuitive? If you look, it doesn't say you obey to get qualified. It says you get qualified and then you come into the kingdom and live obediently. Significant, massive difference. One is the gospel and one is not. It's counterintuitive. God is not standing at the top of a stairway looking down to us and saying, you can do it, come on up. You'll be qualified. No, God comes down the stairway. And because of Christ, he has qualified us and he carries us up with him. So brother, sister, you may have sin in your life right now that's keeping you from walking in a manner pleasing to God. But so long as you have breath in your lungs, you can draw near to God. God intends by all of this, that you would come to the end of yourself and live upon Christ. 
And so the call for all of us, especially for those who know there's unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life, the call on your life is to repent. Stop looking at your hands. Stop wringing your hands. Stop trying to clean the blood on your own. Be honest with what's going on and repent. He will not turn you away. He will not cast you out. He will draw you near in love and compassion that you might see light in the darkness and know once again the pleasure of God in your life. It's the sweetest, greatest place that we can be in this life. And while it may be painful in the moment, you will be so thankful that God has brought you to that place to confess before him what it is that has you in a dark night of the soul. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your help. Thank you for the great reminder that we all need regularly to consider our lives, to confess before you our sin, that we might be cleansed from all unrighteousness, that you may be glorified in our lives, that we might know your nearness and your presence, that we might have sweet communion with you. We recognize, Lord, all of us, that we will never in this life achieve a place of perfect communion. We'll never get to a place where we are sinless. But we do recognize also that Christ is sufficient. That your mercy and your kindness are showered upon your people. And that even in our sin, that you come to us, you draw near to us, and as we repent, as we come clean before you, that you restore our souls, that you bring us back into light, that we not be surrounded by darkness. And so we pray, Lord, as your people, that you would help us to recognize the areas in our life where we fall short, that we might come before you with confidence, knowing that we are secure in Christ, that we can come before you in confidence, not hiding like our, our father Adam, not seeking to disguise ourselves in hopes that you won't know, but rather being honest and recognizing that the way to wholeness, the way to true and full restoration in our communion with you is through repentance, is through trusting your promises and knowing that you are a tender-hearted, patient and gracious father who will not break us, but will restore us in love. And we pray, O oh God, that you would do all of this for your dear people in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.